Hello, hello. Welcome back. How are you doing, my friend? How is fall treating you? We have some beautiful fall sunshine here in Scotland after um, a couple of weeks of really wet, horrible weather. Quite breezy, but beautiful sunshine. So I've just been out in my garden and I was like, I'm feeling so energized. I need to now come in and record this for you. So <laughs> you're getting the version of me that's just been just enjoying this fall sunshine which actually reminds me of something that we're talking about in Lit Up Leisure Academy this month. We're doing a lot of work around personal well-being outside of work so that you're supported with your work because you're in a really good place personally. Because I do so much work with my clients on having boundaries at work, not attending too many meetings, how to say no, all the things that mean we have resilience at work, um, have plenty of decision-making capabilities, all that kind of stuff. And I realized a lot of my one-to-one executive clients there's always something personal that we dig into at some point in my relationship with them. <laughs> always. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's big. But what happens at home impacts our work and vice versa, right? A lot of people come to work with me because their work is impacting negatively on their personal lives. But what about the other way around? And so a lot of the work I do with my executive clients is looking at that personal well-being as well, because it just if you can up-level personally, just making some small tweaks here and there, it can really elevate you professionally. And then it's a self-reinforcing circle, right? In that you do better personally, you do better professionally, you do better professionally, you do better personally. So what's not to love? And so in Lit Up Leisure Academy in this October, which I know we're right at the end of now, but we've been discussing personal well-being. And one of the ones I brought up, which is important for me, because I will share what I do as well, is getting outside in the sun. I don't get enough of it living in Scotland in the autumn and the winter, but when I do, it does speak to my soul. So it's been a beautiful sunny weekend. So I've been trying to get out. It's cold out there. It's very cold. It's very windy, <laughs> but it's still stunningly beautiful. And so really filled my soul. And I was just therefore so enlivened by that experience. I was like, now's the time to go and record my podcast. Now I have the luxury in that I get to dictate my work hours. I can do that in such a weekend. Don't normally do it on a weekend, but I'm going to take it easier this week coming week. And so recording the podcast in the weekend felt really good to me. So I would just love for you to have a think. What can you do to really give yourself that nourishment personally that sets you up professionally? Welcome to the Leading Women in Tech podcast, the show that celebrates women in technology leadership. I'm your host, Tony Collis. And this podcast is the result of my passion for building better tech, by diversifying the leadership of the technology sector. Join me on this journey as I discuss all things leadership, what it takes to be innovative, breaking through the glass ceiling, be a great leader, and how to navigate the unique experiences we face as women in tech. So sit back, grab your headphones, and get ready to be inspired to become a better leader. Let's talk about today's podcast topic. This is a true leadership topic. <laughs> what do you do when you inherit a poor performer? In an ideal world as a leader, you would have the opportunity to pick and hire exactly a team you want, have all the best suited people with the right skills, the drive to succeed, and that strong desire to work cohesively as a team. Indeed, you may well have been in a company where a new executive has come in and has cleared out the ranks and brought in their people. And it tends to upset things quite a lot when you do that. But when we are able to hire the talent for the problems that we have, we can direct culture, we can change how things evolve, and we can make sure that all the core tasks of our team are in someone's zone of genius. 
But the problem is, as I had already hinted at, most of the time we don't get the opportunity to do that. And actually when we do do that, it creates its own set of challenges. So more often than not, you're not going to have the opportunity to replace your team, to build this team, unless you've been brought in specifically to build a new team. You are going to likely inherit somebody, right? Sometimes poor performers will be moved teams in an organization for many reasons, and you may end up inheriting them, often without your agreement or with limited ability to decide otherwise, at least. But whatever the case of why you inherited somebody, or indeed an entire team that's poorly performing, it's important that you are effectively able to deal with it and in a timely manner. Early on in my career, I had the reputation for turning around poorly performing teams. It wasn't a reputation that I was aiming to build, but I definitely had it. And I certainly learned a lot from that experience. And not all of it was as terrible as I thought it would be. And that's really what I want to dig into today. I want you to not necessarily become the person who has that reputation of turning around a poorly performing team, although that will do good things for your career, it's certainly different for mine. But I want to talk about the options you have and what you do when you actually run out of those options. What is your final option? The first thing to recognize is that even if you're uncomfortable or don't know how to handle poor performance, delaying handling this and allowing your poor performance to flounder is not going to do you or your team any favors. Your team, unfortunately, is likely well aware of their poorly performing teammate, if this person's been in the team for a while, or indeed, poorly performing team, it tends to really damage morale. They know they're poorly performing. They know that there's lack of trust, and that just negatively spirals down as morale and trust just continue to diminish. Certainly, when your team is underperforming, I often see it's a morale issue coupled with a lack of direction and focus. So if you have a poorly performing team, do not assume your team is the problem. Sometimes it's morale and too much ambiguity. I would say nine times out of 10 with my turning around poorly performing teams, it was about turning around morale. There were so many ways to do that. And a lot of the time the morale had been damaged because of bad management. I say management, not leadership. And that meant that individuals had shut down, coupled with a huge amount of ambiguity. Now, don't get me wrong, you want great team members to be able to handle ambiguity, but not everybody's capable of doing so. There's a reason you're at the level you are, because you are able to handle ambiguity. But you want to pass less of that down and instead enable them with focus and direction. So all too often, if you have a team, the thing you need to be looking at is, why is the whole team this way? The last thing you can do, by the way, is allow that this to perpetuate. You have to tackle this straight away. Having said that, remember to not rush to judgment. As I've discussed previously on this podcast, you should very, very rarely make any changes in your first 30 days of a new role. So if this is you taking on a new role, promotion, anything like that, try not to do very much in your first 30 days. There may be a lot of pressure to do so, but you won't have the full picture until you spend about a month in the role, really understanding the nuances of the team, what they're doing, what they're struggling, what the outcomes are, why certain things that have been tried in the past haven't worked. Don't be the person that goes in and reinvents the wheel. You're just going to frustrate your team. Before those 30 days are up, you may well make decisions that you later regret, such as letting go of talent that was just underused instead of incompetent. So don't rush a judgment, with a few exceptions, of course, such as misconduct, that means someone needs to be urgently fired. If you want to learn more about your first 90 days process, including a what to do instead of changing things in your first 30 days, do check up our episode 148. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. But back to the broader issue. You've established that someone on your team might not be contributing as much as they could be. 
It's easy to take what you hear at face value, use that to form your own opinions of this particular worker or in, indeed the whole team. But I urge you to try to hold off on this. Try not to be too quick to form an opinion based on the gossip you've heard at the water cooler. This is particularly challenging when a lot of your peers are saying, oh, you've got some hard people here or that person there, mm, not reliable. You're hearing all this gossip. It's almost impossible for that to not impinge on your decision making. But try to allow your decision to be made based on what you actually experience, not the gossip. Base your opinion on what you learn from your interactions with that person. This is one of the things I used to do and it worked so well. Perhaps naively, I always assumed the best of everyone when I started working with whenever I inherited any team. I assumed they could perform how I needed them to and that I could trust them. It's why I'm now a huge believer in starting with trust in our leadership instead of waiting to trust people because they somehow earned it. As the wonderful leader that you are, it's important to come into the situation with empathy, not to prejudge and assume that everybody is capable, competent and trustworthy until they prove otherwise. Who otherwise, who's going to start with the trust if you don't? Instead of jumping to conclusions right away, get to know your new employee. Or if the problem is the entire team, get to know the entire team. Have informal or one-to-one -one conversations with them so you can gain an understanding of their background, what they enjoyed or disliked about their previous role, and whether they have ideas for their new team. By getting to know your new team member, you can gain more context as to why they were perceived as an underperformer. Remember, the majority of the people you are working with have had motivation at some point. This idea that this person's completely unmotivated, never will be, is honestly BS. They have been motivated at some point. They've probably got qualifications. They've landed this job that you are leading them in at some point. After all, landing a job is not exactly fun or easy, right? The question always in my mind is why are they now unmotivated and underperforming? Is it motivation? They don't believe in what they're being asked to do. Is it ambiguity, which is far more common than you believe? And something that many of us really struggle to pick up on or articulate, it's hard to say, I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing because you feel like you should know. Is there something going on personally? Is there a personality clash with other people? You wouldn't believe how many of the underperforming teams I had where personality was a huge part of the problem. Was it a lack of fitting into the structure or process of the organization or something else? Typically, there is a reason and it's all about taking the time to figure that out. Give your underperforming team member a chance and really think about what your definition of underperforming is. This understanding of what poor performance looks like will help you see the why behind that underperforming individual or team. Chances are that your team needs more support and guidance on what to do. They may not have the proper training. They might not have context behind their job duties. There might be a lack of communication between them and their previous manager. And maybe it's just a different idea of what the job entails. But you need to open these lines of communication with your underperforming team members or team. Get to know them. Get to start building that foundation of trust and rapport with them. Assume the best of them. <laughs> I'm going to just keep saying that. Even if you've been told this person is terrible, give them the best possible chance when you start, okay? They may well need some specific coaching. Your team might be more receptive to coaching from a particular person in a particular area. Remember that most people don't know how to coach, right? The number of people I've worked with who said to me, oh, I coach as part of my job. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Do you actually know what coaching is? Remember, there's a difference between teaching, coaching, and mentoring. 
right? Teaching is where we tell someone what to do. And it so often backfires. Mentoring is all about offering ideas and insight, but not dictating, still offering the other person the chance to make the decisions. Most of the people that tell me they coach, they're doing a combination of teaching and mentoring. Coaching is that third level. It's about seeing the person in front of you has the solution. In fact, they will have solutions you would never think of. Your job is to ask them questions, not offer ideas or insight or teaching, but questions so they identify the solution and not you. And the crucial thing with coaching is you get behind what they come up with. You don't then say, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea and fall back into teaching. You stick in the coaching. We move through these layers as the person in front of us gets more confident and more competent. And so much of the time when you have a poorly performing team who logically, rationally, you know they've got the skills, sometimes it's because there's been too much teaching and control. And so they've lost all motivation. They're not excited to bring up their ideas. And therefore, they seem to be operating at the wrong level. I'd say that nine out of 10 times that I've turned around a team, either myself or by working with one of my clients, it was because a previous leader was teaching or mentoring too much instead of coaching. And the team or individual was frustrated and didn't have the self-awareness or ability to provide feedback that they needed. And therefore, a different approach was the key consideration. So spend time observing your new team members' work performance, their processes, their routines, their ability to use technology, or whatever it is they're doing technically. And do they need further training? A training might not come from you. In fact, it might be a really good idea for a third party outside the company to provide that training. So it's not so much tied to a manager saying you're not good. It's incredibly important to seek to understand why someone may or may be perceived to be underperforming before any plan or, dare I say it, disciplinary measures are put in place. As you proceed through your discovery, do document. So document the first signs of poor performance along with any conversations, feedback, coaching you've had with this poor performer. Continue documenting these interactions. This will help me both in terms of that discovery, documenting what is and wasn't working with that person, getting to know them. If you are in a new role in particular, rather than just this person's been moved under you, you've got an awful lot to pay attention to. The more you can document, the actual act of documenting helps you process it and you're going to have a much clearer idea, especially if you've got a hundred other things you're working on as well. But should the worst happen and you do need to exit them, you'll also have the evidence you need to do that. If you put the time in to get to know your employee and have ensured that there are no misunderstandings and you've given them some time to settle into their new role, improve their performance on their own because you're hand-holding them where appropriate, giving them trust, removing ambiguity, having all that kind of conversation that's really going to hopefully level them up. If you then still find that they're floundering, it may be time to take some further steps. If coaching and communication, which, as I said, most of the time, that is the thing you need to do aren't helping, it's time to loop in either your boss and or HR. Have candid conversations about what's going on, lay out the performance issues, you've got that documentation after all, how it's affecting the rest of the team, and then with the support of your boss and your HR team, it may be time to create a good old-fashioned PIP performance improvement plan. But this is a last resort. Can't say that enough. Please don't be that leader who inherits a performer and immediately puts them on a PIP. This is your last resort. Now, these can be incredibly powerful, and when implemented quickly and thoroughly, they can be a great tool for the individual. It just tends to put a level of stress on them, which will diminish their ability to do great work. So 
This should be an act of last resort because you are going to find that their stress levels are going to go up. They may well also start job hunting, at which point they've got less to give to the role anyway. But remember that the best plans, even though they're a last resort, will make it very clear to the individual what their objectives are and the measures of success. It should allow them to succeed. It should lay out what they need to accomplish in order to pass within the time frame that you're giving. You need to indicate what will happen if your requirements aren't met by the stated time. It's really, really important. Make sure it's aligned with their job description. Make sure it provides guidance on what management is going to be providing to help them with this, what check-ins are going to happen, what training, mentoring, coaching, skill development courses, counseling, whatever it is that's needed. Lay it all out. Where appropriate, use SMART goals, SMART, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-bound, big believer in those. It really makes you think about, is this a real goal or is it just, it seems like a nice idea, but it's very hand-worthy with nothing quantifiable behind it. As an empathetic and compassionate leader, when you implement this plan, you are going to be conveying your own commitment to the plan, to their success. You're going to be saying like, let's do this together. Let's make sure this works for you. Yes, everybody kind of knows that a PIP is there with the final step of exiting them, but there should be no confusion for this individual. They need to take ownership of pushing through and executing the work in this plan. You need to support them, you need to give them that right support, but they should show improvement because the plan is in place. Once that PIP has been implemented, make sure that there are regular follow-ups, regular check-ins. Make sure that there are reasons for cancelling if they are cancelled at all. Um, if, they, if the individual cancels, that may well be a sign that this isn't working. That is actually a sign for like, hey, this PIP is not going to be the thing. We are going to end up exiting them. But use follow-ups that do happen to take a deep dive into their progress. Remove ambiguity. Assess what's going on with them. Try and understand what they need to move forward. Try and understand what they need in order to level up and stop making decisions for themselves again. Part of the problem with PIPs and why they are a last resort is it removes a lot of their decision-making. It's really about you do this, you do this, you do this in your past, right? What we want to do ideally as part of this process is get their trust back, get them to start doing the, the operations that are part of their job description, and then level them up so they start taking action that's beyond this plan. But you need to document all these progressions. You need to understand if there are any holes still. As they meet goals, are there other goals that rise to the surface that aren't being met that you didn't put in the plan that's often the way? What additional training can you give them without overwhelming them? Because they still have a number one priority of performing as to this performance improvement plan. Now, hopefully, as you and your team member work through this plan, you're going to see improvement. The goals are going to be met. And at the end of it, you're going to close everything off by the end date. However, as is more often than not the case, but if you get to the point of putting them on one of these plans, more often than not, milestones are not going to be met. You're going to be faced with this hard decision of what to do next. So I really hope you are hearing here that you want to try everything before a performance improvement plan because the likelihood is, more often than not, there are exceptions. But in my experience, that at the end of the PIP, you're going to then have to decide to let them go. So there are multiple ways of letting them go, of course. It might be that they can move to a team which requires less of them. I've worked in organizations where they demoted people who weren't performing well. I never thought that was a very good idea from a motivation point of view, but they said, hey, you're not able to operate at this level, so we're going to put you back down here and move you over to this team. But you've got to rule out that it's not a personality clash with you as a manager, but 
given that we're talking about inheriting, a poorly performing team member is unlikely to be you as well as somebody else. It's likely more to be they're not a good fit for the company. Sometimes the expectations were too high and unrealistic in those goals, in the plan. So you might need to reevaluate the plan. Take advice from your boss. Take advice from HR. Avoid the trap of holding onto them because you feel terrible about it. And I say this as somebody who really, really struggles. I truly believe everybody is competent and capable. That's <laughs> very naive. But even I've had to exit people from time to time. And so sometimes we have to be like, no, this is not the right thing for the business. One of the things that's really brought that home to me is being my own CEO. At the end of the day, if I don't have a well-performing team, I know the damage it does to the business. I know the damage it does to the bottom line. I know the damage it does to how much money I can take home because I pay myself from profit, whereas other people are salaried. And so if I have a poorly performing company, I don't get to pay myself at the end of the month. And so that's really changed my perspective on this. I love to work really hard to elevate somebody. But at the end of the day, sometimes those people just aren't a good fit. And so we exit them. So I would urge you, as I always do with coaching, have a think about where you are on the spectrum of from one end, naively wanting everybody to be amazing and believing in everything they do and holding on to them for dear life, like I have been in the past, all the way through to this is a, this is this person's just not working out. Let's get them gone, right? There's a spectrum there, one extreme to the other. We always want to end up in the middle. Understand where your natural tendency is on that spectrum and what that might look like. I have a, an amazing lady I work with and she sounds like the kind of person who will exit people quite well. But when she's hired them, she has a huge team under her. When she has been directly responsible for hiring, it was her decision. They report directly into her. She holds onto them for a dear life. <laughs> when it's somebody several layers down, she'll be telling the manager, you need to exit them. But she really struggles with letting them go when they're a direct report. Because I, I'm, I'm not really sure we've actually fully understood why. But I wonder if it's because she knows them better. So she has that attachment to them. That's always hard. But it could also be that scared of having made a mistake, right? She was a hiring manager. So if that one resonates, check in with yourself. Does that resonate too? Whatever it is, have a look at what your weak spot is in this area. So to wrap up this episode, inheriting a poor performing team member as a leader is challenging but manageable. You want to, more than anything, avoid those snap judgments. And as I said, the spectrum Avoid snap judgments at each end of the spectrum. Move yourself to the middle. Strive to understand the deep reasons behind the underperformance. Look at effective communication, coaching, observe them, and document everything you do. At the end of the day, letting them go is an option, but you need to rule out all the other things for us because it is expensive to replace somebody. Sometimes in some countries, it's actually really, really hard to terminate somebody's employment without a real level of gross misconduct as well. So have a look at what is possible, involve your boss, involve HR, and make sure you're doing regular follow-ups with this person until you decide the route forward. Remember, as always with this one, this is as much about them as it is about you. Try not to let this one get under your skin. It is awful if you have to let somebody go. It's also awful running a team that is not performing at the level you need them to perform at. So you need to do a lot of resiliency work in order to get up every day and do a good job despite all this going on. What I would say is you want to deal with this moderately quickly. Yes, you need 30 days to understand the situation. But at 60 days, you want to have wrapped this one up as quickly as possible, or at least be in the midst of a performance improvement plan. Because if you haven't, 
the cost to the team, the cost to the company, and the cost to you is going to mean you all are suffering in a way that is unnecessary. And actually, I think it's a kindness sometimes to let people go if they're really floundering. Yes, it sucks that they aren't getting paid anymore, but sometimes some of us need a bit of a kick to realize this isn't the right place for me and I need to get out. That's it for today's episode. If you have found that this topic has resonated with you, maybe you've gone through this in the past, maybe you're struggling with it right now, I'd love to hear from you. You can always pop a note below any of these episodes or pop over to LinkedIn and send me a DM. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, stay on your tech leadership game, follow your dreams, because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech.